Well, this month of January, we're taking a subject called broken signposts. The signposts that are around um, the churches that Christians should be having, but have somehow lost their way. It's not that we've lost our way or Christ has lost his way, but somehow we have lost telling people the way. And so last week we talked about Christ and the core, and today we're going to talk about our own walk. Are you a signpost for Jesus Christ? The Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but it also says that we are to show the way. We are to point the way, like John the Baptist pointed the way. John the Baptist was not the way, he was the pointer of the way. You and I are to point the way, and so we in some uh, sense are signposts. And the question is, are you a real good signpost? Are you something that really communicates that this is the way to Jesus, or in some cases, is it broken? Or is it so roughed up with shrubbery that nobody can see it? And so today we're going to look at that, if we could. So if you have your Bibles, go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. We're taking some of the verses out of Colossians. They come from all over the Bible uh, as well. But just kind of looking at this, I'd like to read a few verses, probably verse 6 through verse 11. And then we're going to look at eight things. So I'm going to give you a lot of things today. Eight areas of the signpost. Don't feel like you got to take all eight. Take one or take two of these. Can you do that? So as you're seeing them, write them down, write one or two down and go, I want to do this this week. So don't feel like you got to do all eight. There's eight of them. I'll share with them in a few moments. Colossians chapter two, verse six. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. It's right there. Throughout the New Testament, we are to walk in the light. We are to walk in the love. We are to walk in Jesus Christ. We are to walk into the person we have received, which is Christ Jesus the Lord, rooted and built up in him. This signpost is to be deep. It is to be rooted. It's to be there. We are to be there. We're not to be this wavering Signs, you know, here in Florida, when the winds come, what, what do the signs do? Have you ever seen them? One hurricane, we had a sign right in front of our house, the stop sign in front of our yard to the next street, and it would bounce down and then bounce down and bounce down and bounce down, and eventually it was gone. Couldn't withstand the winds. The question is, can you withstand the winds? And I think if we're rooted and built up in him, the hymn is Christ, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There are two ways you can do this. You can do it this way, or you can do it Christ's way. And Paul is saying, do it Christ's way, because the sign that you're walking in needs to be rooted in Jesus Christ. For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's a great theological statement, which we're not going to talk about today, but the importance of Christ. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. 
Let's stop there for a moment. This is enough to begin to realize that your faith is based on Jesus Christ. Your rootedness is based on Jesus Christ. What you do is based on Jesus Christ. And if it's not based on Jesus Christ, there are problems. And we'll discuss that. And I'd like to look at these eight in four and four if I could. And if I can use glasses, those of us who can't see real well without glasses, those of you who don't wear glasses don't get it, but these lenses, sometimes there's one set of lenses and there's another set of lenses. Those of you who have contacts, have one contact here, have another contact here, one for short-sightedness, one for long-sightedness and far-sightedness and different things. So there's these lenses that we look at and we look at life through lenses. And we need to know what are the lenses to look at about our faith and about our walk. So can we do that? So we'll start with four, and I'll use these as the content of our walk. This is what we need to understand about the walk, and then we'll actually talk about the walk. So number one is this, and this is so important, and they're not in any order except this one. The walk includes a conversion, a conversion. Now, many uh, Christian denominations, and let me just say, when I use the word Christian today and evangelical, if I use those words, I'm kind of using them in the very large sense. And so some may be Christians, some may not be Christians, some may be, but when a follower of Christ, there are people who would call themselves Christians who are not necessarily followers of Christ. What do I mean by that? There are those who um, grew up in the church, There are those who have families that grew up in the church. There are those who come from countries that were Christian as opposed to Islamic. And so if I grew up in this country, I'm Christian. If I grew up in that country, I'm another religion. And so there's a lot of people who think they are in the faith and that they're walking the Christian life who really aren't because they never were converted. What does that mean? Conversion is very simple, this, and you can use other words. So these are simple words. You turn away from something and you turn towards something else. It's a turning, convert means to turn. You turn away from your sin, repentance, you turn towards Christ, faith. Now we can use the word trust. This passage uses the word receive. You can use different words. So I'm not stuck on the words, but you've moved from your own life to the life of Christ. Why is this important? Because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned, we fall short of the glory of God. And then it, now that's bad enough, but then it goes on and goes, and the wages of falling short, the wages of sin is what? Death. So all have fallen short and sinned, and the wages of falling short in sin and sin is death. So all of us, just A equals B, B equals C, A equals C, a simple algebraic is all of us are gonna die spiritually. That's all of us are gonna die. And it says the word wages. So a wage means a payment. So there will be a payment for your sin. Now you're not gonna like this maybe, but there's only two people who can pay for your sin. 
please understand that there are two people who can pay for your sin. You can and Christ can. That's it. Now, I can pay for some of your minor sins, like your sins against other people. So you go out on Fourth Avenue and you speed and you come back and you get that ticket, which you deserve because you sinned. And it's not $50. I was gonna, you know, this morning I was thinking it's $275. And you come to me and go, will you pay for my ticket? And let's say I do pay for your ticket. I have paid for your sin on Fourth Avenue but I have not paid for your sin against God. I cannot do that. I can pray for you. You can, you know, some people go, you know, my older sister, she's so good. She's praying for me. She's kind of making penance for me. No, your older sister can't make penance for you. She can be a great lady. My mother prayed for me. She did what needed to be done. No, she did to help you. All that's good, but please understand it's either you or Jesus. Why? Because the Bible says all of us are going to have a day of judgment. Again, this is the part of the Bible none of us like to read, but there's a judgment day. And on that judgment day, I am going to stand before God. And guess what? My fantastic wife will not be standing next to me. I cannot go, I'm with you because of her. I can't. You can't get into the kingdom because of what someone else has done except one person, that's Jesus Christ. So when I stand at the kingdom, I got a mediator, a lawyer, an advocate, a solicitor, wherever you come from, whatever you want to call him, he is my substitute. And he's going to stand there before God and go, I got this one. And stand between me and God and say, look at me, not him. That is what conversion means. And anything short of that is nothing. It's good works, it's good, it's great, it's nice, it's clean, it's helpful, and all the rest. But please understand, it is not what the Bible says. We have received Christ Jesus. And that's the tough part. And if you have never done that, you can be here at church all your life You can help in the children's ministry. You can donate. You can do great things. And let me tell you, all that's great. And if you want to donate to the church, we'll take your money. That's great. But just please understand, that's not getting you in front of the king and answering the question, who's paying for your sin? Only Jesus is. If you've never done that, that's why these people are down here afterwards. We'd love to talk to you, come down and talk to you. I'm not, it's not a threat. It's nothing. It's in the Bible. So here's the problem. The problem is there's a lot of people hovering around this cross. Not this one, but kind of a metaphor of the cross. And you don't really know, do we? I don't know. You talk the language. You're sitting in church. You look good. You donate a little. You volunteer at the nonprofit. You help with the clothing ministry. You help with the... But all that is good, but let me tell you, that comes afterwards. Don't miss the most important thing, which is conversion. If you want to walk in Jesus Christ, you got to be his child. Number two, out of this then comes action. Out of this, it's important. I've put three words there. You could put a hundred different words there. 
You need to express your faith, you need to proclaim your faith, and you need to apply your faith. You need to apply this, and proclaiming this is important. I have a friend who uh, always tells me that her faith is private. I go, what does that mean? Well, what I believe is none of your business, and it's no one else's business. And let me just tell you this. Our faith is personal, but it is not private. Because people go, yeah, they'll see my good works. Okay, that's true, and it's, it is true. They'll see my good works. But when they see my good works, is it me they're seeing? It is, and I can do some good things, and you can do some good things. Are we there to thank you, or are we there to thank the person to whom you're doing it for? And that's the key thing. That's why you gotta proclaim that you love Jesus. If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, we are glad you're here, but we want you to know that we love Jesus here. And that's what we want you to know. We proclaim that. We just sang it. And in our groups, we practice it. And in our volunteerism, we practice it. And here we want you to know that we are a community of people that love Jesus. If not, why don't we just become a community? A community center. This would be a great community center. Wow, we do all this outreach. We do all this stuff for homeless. We do all this stuff for clothing. This would be a perfect community center. Can I tell you, it's not a community center. It's a community of believers. And when you have a community of believers, it's called the church. This is a church. It's not just a community center, although we do things that the community center does. But we do it in the name of Jesus because we got a signpost that says, this way to Jesus. And each one of us are a signpost. Wherever you have been planted, as a teacher in the school, at your workplace, in your condominium, as you visit here. If you're here for a month, we love you, winter people. Be a signpost in South Florida for a month. Then when you go back north, be a signpost up there. Don't leave your signpost up north. Be a signpost down here. Number three, and this is huge. The content of our faith, the content of our walk is based on this book, the Bible. We are biblically based. This is important. I stand up in front of you every week. Matthew stands up, Francois stands up, Bill Hood stands up. We all stand up, Clay sings, and we all stand here. And you know what? We could say anything we want to say. But if it is against the book, go with the book. Can I just tell you that? Go with the book. Now, I'm holding it, but let me tell you, as a metaphor, it holds itself. The Bible does not need me to hold it. In other words, I am not holding the book. The book holds me. And we need to understand that, that we are no better than anyone else if we don't follow the book. It's the Bible. It's our guiding light towards it so that we do the walk. Now, we're not going to do it perfect because the Bible says we're all sinners. I get it. And we're going to disagree from time to time. And that's okay too. You want to baptize this way. You you didn't like the way I did communion today. You do it a different way in your tradition. I'm fine with that. I have no problem with that. There to me is a lot of liberty in our faith. But when it comes to the real core documents in the Bible, 
we've got to follow this, not that. Because we could follow the church and fathers and the church mothers. We could follow um, some of the great writers of the faith, and there's some fantastic writers of the faith. And some people go, oh, I follow her, or I follow him. And it's good to read them, but realize that this is the book. The other day, I was talking to a lady, and she used to come to our church. I said, where are you, where are you fellowshipping? She goes, I fellowship with myself. I'm like, that's a lonely place to fellowship, first of all. But the sad thing is, she is the master of her belief. And I got to tell you, I am not the master of my belief. The Bible is the master of my belief. And then fourth, and finally on this first four, and you might say this means the same thing, but I just want to get it down. It's the centrality of the cross. We are Christ-centered. Now, I have a belief that every chapter, every story in this book leads to Jesus Christ. The book of Genesis leads to the book of Romans. It's just an amazing thing. The book of Exodus leads to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You just start reading the books of the Old Testament and realizing it is moving us towards something. When you read the Gospels, that is the story of Christ. Then you read the book of Acts and the epistles, and, well, the Acts is telling us of the beginning of what Christ's church was doing, and the epistles tell us the theology and how to live out this new understanding of the church. And it's all towards Christ. And the minute we leave Christ out of it, we have lost something. And there are a lot of churches that, you know, are, are based out of the Psalms, which is a great book. And I love the book, but the, our faith is not totally based out of the Psalms. You know, they'll read a Psalm and then they'll have a little meditation in the Psalms. And that's very good. But that is not what our faith is. Some others will read a teaching of Jesus. You know, um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That is excellent. But our faith is based on the centrality of the cross. The reality that Jesus died on the cross and lived a sinless life and then he rose again. You see, that's the important thing. He rose again, and the Bible says, because he lives, we too shall live. I hope you get that. I'm not being facetious here because the, every word in the Bible is important. I just said Bible-based. But then specifically that we are Christ-centered, and, and in that Christ-centeredness is the centrality of the cross. Another part of Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians later on, I won't get to it in chapter 15 if you want to read it, he describes the gospel which just described what I just said. And then he goes this, if it didn't happen, meaning the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then everything we believe is foolishness. He says we are fools. And he says, and I am the greatest fool. Here is one of the great Christian leaders saying he is a fool if that is not true. So you can extract, well, I, I baptize this way or I do communion that way. That's okay. But you extract the cross of Jesus Christ out of our belief and you 
have taken it all apart. You cannot have belief in Jesus Christ without the cross, and it's central. So as you walk in Jesus Christ that we have received, you are walking knowing about the cross. Now, that's the embarrassing thing. Do we want to talk about the cross? And the answer is yes, we have to. Now, let's look at the second set of lenses. Can we do that? This is the four realities of actually living out our walk. Can we do it? So we kind of talked about the walk. Now, living it out, number one, and this is kind of the tougher one. We'll get it out of the way. We need to have sound doctrine because sound doctrine leads to practicing the truth. And what I've discovered as I read and as I listen on these podcasts and you all send me things and I go, there's a lot of things going on that aren't sound doctrine. There are a lot of people saying a lot of things in and around the cross, in and around the church, in and around Christianity that really aren't it. And so you need to have sound doctrine. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we get together in groups. That's why we have church. That's why we teach out of the Bible because we need to know the tenets of our faith. The importance of our faith is that it's real and it's based on truth. Our faith is not basically a feeling. Do you feel good about your faith? Well, I hope you do, but that's not the answer. Your feelings are not the answer. They're important, they're good, and we'll talk about it in a moment when your feelings are not doing good, but our faith is based on truth, the truth of Jesus Christ. And if you struggle with the truth of Jesus Christ, you're gonna struggle with everything else. There's a struggle with it all. So that's why at this church, we love doctrine, we love teaching the Bible, we love understanding it. Now, there are a lot of doctrinal systems we may not go into. There's some great systems of understanding doctrine. I'm just talking the core things of the faith. Now, let's get to some of the harder things. Number two, have you ever questioned God? Have you ever questioned your faith? Have you ever doubted? Raise your hand if you have. I'm raising my hand, so have you? Good. Not good, but thank you for being honest. Actually, it is a little good. So how do we handle questions? How do we handle doubts? How do you handle it? And let me tell you this. I heard a guy, Francis Schaeffer, a generation ago when I was much younger say this, that there are honest answers for honest questions. He said the problem is most people ask dishonest questions. Now what is the difference between an honest question and a dishonest question. An honest question is seeking the truth. A dishonest question is just miring yourself into something, either trying to um, get the person you're asking the question confused or confusing yourself or doubting more, or there's an anger issue or there's a doubting issue or whatever it is, and you ask things. I've had people ask a question, I answer it, they ask another question, I answer, ask another question, I answer, ask another question, I answer, then I go, you know, I'm not answering any more of your questions. Because here's the thing, questions that are answered are not faith in Jesus Christ. If I answered every question you had, 
you would still not be a believer in Jesus Christ. It takes a step of what? Faith. Now, it's not a blind leap. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher 150 years ago, said you just blindly walk into faith. I don't believe that. I believe you step into faith. And you know you're stepping into faith. And when you step into it, though, it is faith because we're dealing with things we have not seen. I wasn't there 2,000 years ago. I've never been to heaven. I've never been into the future. This is faith. You have to have faith. But you also have to feel comfortable with the questions that you have. But those of you who have questioned, are you questioning just to question? Are you questioning to see about your faith? And that is the important thing to understand. We need to move from questioning because when you question, it's like being on a bridge. And if you've ever been on the bridge, what does the sign say on the bridge? It ices up first for you northerners. For us, it says slippery when wet. In other words, bridges are a very dangerous place to be. So you get on a bridge of doubt, do not stay there. You stay there, you are just gonna, something's gonna happen. Either move towards faith, and I've told people, just stop it and go back until you're ready to move towards faith. Because this cynicism that people have just doesn't work. So the extreme of this is if you never ask a question, there's this easy believism. Just believe. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I don't believe that. You gotta struggle and grapple with your faith, but also always questioning your faith isn't the answer either. Jesus Christ is the answer. And faith in him or not faith in him. The amazing thing is it's your choice. We can talk about sovereignty and all the rest, but at some point that receipt will come. But just be careful not to always question. Now, there are times when you're disappointed with God. So let me ask it this way. Has anybody ever been disappointed or discouraged in life? Yes. Okay. So as you walk through this disappointment, and psychologists who are in this room and family therapists will tell you there's a series of things that happen. And at some point during this process, you have to give it over to God. Because if you don't, you'll end up in that small room in the corner in a dark place in the fetal position. People say to me and to Elizabeth after all that we've been through and all the death and the pain and the sorrow and the grief, why aren't you in a corner in a fetal position? And can I tell you, I'm just gonna tell you my experience. Without Jesus Christ, I would be. That's all it is to it. Because here's the thing. I don't know why these things all happen and when they happen and why they happen. I just know the who that's above the why. We always want to know why these things happen. Can I tell you there's a who above the why? 
And if you know the who, then the why will begin to fall into place. But from the beginning, at least the Bible tells us, if you believe it, that we live in a fallen world and we all are gonna have pain, sorrow, tears, and ultimately death. It tells us on the third page of that thousand page book. So it's not like they're hiding it in the middle that you can't read. You read the third page today and you'll realize that you are going to experience pain, sorrow, and tears. And everyone in this room has done that. And all of us have experienced people who have died and we will one day die. So on this earth, I can't explain all that. I don't know why our son died at 13 and my parents are living at 92. I don't know. God knows. I don't know. And I don't know if I'm going to live another 20 years or I'm going to die tomorrow. And nor do you. But this is the key. Can we know who knows? And the answer is yes. And that is the step of faith, is do you believe that there's someone who's concerned for us, someone who loves us, someone who died for us, someone who is there? And that is the crux of the message of Christ. That's the crux of the gospel. That's the crux of the church. And everything else is window dressing around it. We do all these good deeds because uh, we love Jesus Christ. Now, two last things, and these are very important because it brings it together. Number one, or number three, sorry, the first, the number three is biblical spirituality. There is a spiritual side to this, and that is we are to love God. How does the Bible tell us we are to love? The Old Testament says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. The New Testament tells us, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, right? We are to love God. This is primary. We live in a society, we live in a culture that doesn't believe that there is even a God. So you're countercultural just by saying you believe and love a God. I mean, you're like over here in a minority. Just understand that. So now you say it's only Jesus Christ. You're in a smaller minority. Then you say you have to walk in a certain way that he has called us. You're even in a smaller minority. And as you recall last week, I said it was 4%. It was interesting. I was with the man who gave me that report months ago. And he had given me, I had lunch with him this week. And he said, you know, Bill, that's a high number. He goes, the other three national religious surveys, and if I gave you the names of the organizations, you would know I'm not Christian, say it's 3%. 4% is a generous amount. There are 3% of Americans that truly believe as we have just described. So we are a minority of a minority. So that leads to the fourth one, and this is where it plays out. Number four is this, the beauty, and I put it these words, again, Francis Schaeffer, who was a, a mentor from a distance a generation ago for me, put it this way. He said, the beauty of good human relationships. What does the Bible say? They will know we are Christians by our love. You see, what we can do 
in front of other people is to show love. We can show love to each other. We can show love to other people. And that goes to the second great commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And we are to love our neighbor. Now, it's interesting when Jesus said that, the lawyer said, who is my neighbor? And how did Jesus respond? Do you remember? He didn't respond that you are my neighbor. Of course you're my neighbor. You're my friends. His response was about a Samaritan. A Samaritan. Can I say that would be like a Muslim? You know, there's several thousand Muslims in our community. Do you know they're our neighbors too? How about the atheists? Wow, they're our neighbors too. How about the LGBTQ plus plus? They're our neighbors too. They're our neighbors. And what are we supposed to do with all these people that don't believe as I believe maybe? We are to love them and show them the love of Christ. The beauty of good human relationships. The problem has been historically in the church, not this church necessarily, although it was about 15 years ago, is that we love to fight each other. So we're fighting each other over some whatever, policy or this or that, some things that are good, some things that are not. And the world is watching us and not getting it because we're supposed to love God and love our neighbor. They know that much. They know that much of the Bible. So we're to love our neighbor as ourself. So of these eight things that help us, that guide us in our walk and our signpost, is there one or two you could take and go, I'm gonna work on these this week, is there? Just take one or two. Let me review them real quick. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Conversion, are you doing something about it? Action, do you believe the Bible? And are you doing something, are you learning the Bible, basing your life on the Bible? Is the cross central in your life? And then sound doctrine, are you looking to help people answer honest questions? And confronting them when you realize they're not. My brother-in-law this, my niece that, my friend this. Confront them with their doubting. Instead of we're afraid, you know what? People come to me and go, I'm afraid I can't answer their question. Well, answers aren't the answer. Jesus is the answer. And then love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In May 1954, let's step back, 1953, there were two things in the world that people thought would never happen ever. One was summiting Mount Everest. So May 29, 1953, Norgay, Tenzing, and Sir Edmund Hillary were the first. 
I just checked at the end of December a month ago, that number had gone to 6,664 people who have summited Everest, a mountain that they said a generation ago would never be summited. The other thing that uh, everybody said would never happen would be the breaking of the four-minute mile. May 1954. There's three guys. They're on the Oxford running team. A guy named Chris Braswell, Chris Chataway, and Roger Bannister. And then there was a guy named John Landy. I think he was from Denmark. They didn't, these guys were from England. He's from Denmark. They want to break it. They're all at like 402, 403. I think one even got to 401. And this is how they figured out. Obviously, Roger Bannister, if you don't know, I'll, spoiler alert, he was the first. And you know how he did it? It's amazing. The three of them did it together, but nobody remembers this. So Chris Braswell, you know, um, back then it was four laps, the 444 times, that's a mile. So four laps. Four minutes, you got to do every lap in a minute. You got to do the last lap in 59 seconds to break it, right? Minute, 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 59 seconds. So Chris Braswell practiced the half a mile, and he figured out that he could do one lap in exactly 60 seconds and another lap. He knew his cadence. He knew everything. Chris Braswell was doing a half-mile run that day in May 1954. The other two guys were following him and staying right with him. Then Chris Chataway knew he had to do the third quarter mile, the third lap, in 60 seconds. He practiced doing three laps in 60, 60, and 60, and he did it. Then the fourth lap, these guys kind of pulled back. Roger Bannister knew he had to do it in 59 seconds. And on that day, he did it in 59.4, which meant it was three minutes, 59 and four-tenths. They didn't have hundreds back then on their stopwatches. It was four-tenths. And he did it. And he broke the world's, um, not the record, obviously he did that, but the acknowledgement that they would never break the four-minute mile. John Landy broke it finally the next week. Chris Braswell broke it two weeks later. Chris Chataway broke it three weeks later. The four guys that were the only four at that point in time that could do it all broke the four-minute mile after it was broken the first time. But how did they break it the first time? They did it in a team. Even though it's a single sport, running is a single sport, they did it as a team. We as believers... It's a single sport in a way. It is my faith in Jesus Christ. I said that at the beginning that gets me in connection with God. But it is a team sport as well because God has called us to assemble as a church and to assemble as churches to come together because here's the thing. When you go fast, when you do what God calls you, I win. Nobody may ever know me. No one may ever know. It doesn't matter. 
But when you pray for me and you help me, no one may know it, but you win as well. Do you see it? That's what the church is. The church is us coming together to help each other. Why? Because our signposts are flapping like this. And if you can help someone dig it a little deeper, put a little more concrete around it, get it a little more stabilized, and even for some, direct it the right way, wouldn't this be a better place? There's 800 of us in this room. Wouldn't it be great if there were 800 signposts around Boca Raton all pointing to Jesus, all doing it, proclaiming, expressing with action? There's two, three, 400 of you online right now. You have signposts. There's dozens, if not hundreds, who are gonna listen to this over the next week. You have signposts. Let us help each in our walk towards Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.